Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. I'm so excited to introduce Robert H. Frank today. Uh, I was doing some research on uh, behavioral finance and using credit and buying our pay later to buy crap that you don't bloody need right then and there. And then you get up into this debt cycle and all that crap. But I stumbled across at the end of last year, Robert H. Frank, and he's actually, he's a big deal. He's a professor at Cornell University in America. So it's an Ivy League university. He's got basically a PhD in economics and a master's in statistics. He's got a bachelor of mathematics from Georgia Tech. He is a big deal. He also has his economic view. It's a monthly column in the New York Times. I actually, before I reached out to him even, I read one of his books, uh, Success and Luck. And then when I reached out to him, uh, he said, oh, you should have a read of his new book, uh, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Both books were fascinating and I would really encourage you to have a read of those. I will put the links in the show notes. I wanted to just say thank you to everybody who has purchased a My Money Journal so far. There's been hundreds of them shipped out and we are just so thankful for your support with what we're doing and it's adding so much value. We've had such good feedback and people have uh, been able to apply the principles and the guides in the money journal to uh, get the year started well. And if you do have an iPad and you wanted to buy an electronic version, you could also do that on our website. It's a little bit cheaper, but uh, we've still got some value there to respect the, the people who've already purchased it. A couple of housekeeping things for the Facebook group. We ask you to put uh, links and images uh, in the first comment of your post, just so it doesn't clog up the feed. If I do see a post or whatever that I think will benefit you and needs to grab your attention, like a testimony of somebody buying their first house, I will put that in there for encouragement. But ordinarily, let's try and keep that as clean as possible. If you see any dodgy people in there, just report the comment. We self kind of moderate this group. So if you report stuff that is weird, uh, please do that. Also, if someone DMs you without permission publicly, please let us know and we'll likely boot them from the group uh, because we just want to keep it as a pure and clean place. We're going to get into this interview now. Thank you so much. And I hope that you are so encouraged from this episode because I certainly was. And one of the principles that he talks about how to think like an economist, uh, I've been using that in my business since I did this uh, episode at the start of the year. If it sounds a bit awkward when I called him Bob, it's because when we were emailing back and forth, he kept using the name Bob. So I thought he might want to be called that, but a bit awkward. Anyway, I'll talk to you soon. Bye.
Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining My Millennial Money. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your time. My pleasure, Glenn. Thank you. You once said in a quote, and you might not remember it, and you, <laughs> uh, and you may remember it, but I'll say it anyway. Once you learn to think like an economist, all kinds of puzzling observations start to make sense. So, question is, how do we learn to think like an economist? Oh, my goodness. That's, a, that's an enterprise. Uh, I think the, <laughs> the quote you may have come across must have been in my 2007 book. Uh, the title of it is The Economic Naturalist, and it's a collection of examples uh, mainly sourced from my students. Uh, I give them an assignment regularly. It's to pose an interesting question based on something you've either experienced personally or observed personally out there in the world, uh, a question that intrigues you, uh, and then try to use basic economic principles to answer it. And, you know, there really aren't very many economic principles uh, that we need to call on to do most of the heavy lifting. The, the granddaddy of all of them is the cost-benefit principle. It says, do something if the benefit exceeds the cost of doing it. That sounds simple-minded uh, yeah, yeah. and uncontroversial, but it's it's actually rather hard to apply in practice because the the costs and benefits it's it's hard even to figure out uh, which ones are relevant and then how to conceptualize them and measure them. That's hard too, but you can uh, answer all sorts of interesting questions just with that basic framework. So, for example, one of my students asked, uh, why do the regulators force you to strap your kid into an approved safety seat to drive two blocks to the grocery store, yet they will let you carry your toddler untethered on your lap on a flight from Sydney to New York? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Why that difference? And Greg Ballot, my student, said when he would ask his classmates that question i said all, to, to figure out if you have an interesting question to ask your friends and see how they react if they glaze over then you don't but he said they they seemed interested uh and immediately they'd say oh because if the plane crashes everybody's going to die anyway so what does it matter if you're strapped in <laughs> and he thought about that and he said no that can't be the answer because they'd uh required seat belt, belts in planes long before they did in automobiles and 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 the reason wasn't to protect you if the plane crashed yes you're going to die in that case but it's to protect you in the event of turbulence which used to be much more common and so the reason for the differential requirement he reasoned had to be not on the the benefit side of having belts that benefits would be higher in a plane than in a car it had to be on the cost side and sure enough when you think about that once you've got a safety seat in the back seat of your car, it's it's free, just the, the minimal time and effort to strap your toddler in. If you had to uh, use a safety seat on a plane, that could cost you a couple of thousand dollars for the extra seat. So it was really the fact that it was just too costly to require that they strap you in if you're a toddler on an airplane, and it's uh, much cheaper to do that in a car. Wow, wow. So that, that collection just had... Uh, a, more than a hundred of the of the best examples from over the years submitted by my students, and and they're marvelous. And it was just a great practical way to learn some of the basic principles of economics. 
Yeah, I, I must be an economics student at heart because I remember one of my first memories about money was when I was 10 years old, my grandfather had uh, an acreage and he said to me, Glenn, I'll, I'll pay you to pick the fireweed and it's a, a, re- a, a little uh, kind of yellow weed that looks like a flower, but it's a weed. And he said, I'll pay you 50 cents an hour. And I just, I said, nah, no deal uh, because the benefit <laughs> wasn't there for the, for the cost of my time. So There you go. So, there. <laughs> so you've taught hundreds of students. What do you love seeing in your students uh, as the year goes on? Like, because I'd imagine Cornell, the bar is high to get there anyway. Yeah, the students are good. The nice thing about this assignment that I just described to you, I, I, I have them write two papers during the term. They're short, uh, 500 words maximum. I tell them if you can't do it in that space, then you don't really have, have a, a clear understanding of your idea. And what's so satisfying to me about that assignment is that uh, oftentimes the first submission, uh, which is due at around midterm, uh, the questions aren't really that interesting. It, it, it's, it's a challenge to come up with an interesting question like the one I described to you. They're, they're, they're not just lying around uh, ready for you to pick up. You have to really ponder for, for a while to come up with them. And they're not very good on the first submission, but the, the dramatic improvement I notice on round two is really heartening. That's when I feel like they've really gotten the, the, the hang of the exercise and they're just going to do economic naturalist explanations for the rest of their natural lives. Yeah, because I, I guess there's two styles of thinking and I, I'm probably more of the practical intelligence uh, spectrum rather than the intellectual intelligence spectrum. Okay. Uh, do you find it takes someone who might be a bit more intellectually rather than practically intelligent to really unlock those thoughts in their mind? No, I, I think uh, that's one of the tragedies of economics teaching in the last half century or more uh, the profession got enamored of mathematical formalism. And so to do well in economics, it was really a question of how good you were in math. Yeah. The, the basic economic principles don't really require a lot of mathematics. Uh, it's just common sense uh, more than anything else. So I think you'd have done fine at this. Yeah. Awesome. Now, throughout this uh, interview for, for the listeners that are out there who are dialed in and engaged, I want you to think about the principles that Bob, uh, and I can call you Bob informally, can I? Fine. Awesome. I want you to really think about the principles that Bob talks about and how we can bring them into our own personal finances. And just one, cost versus benefit. How can you use that analogy in your life for work, with your money and all that? Now, let's get into some hard stuff. We're going to talk about Bob's, I feel really weird calling you Bob, but whatever. Uh, we're going to talk about your recent book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. And this is a mind-blowing book in terms of just to really get the cogs spinning. But before we do that, you kind of talk, well, a fair bit in a lot of your writings about this consumption tax idea. So, talk to us about a consumption tax. What is it? How would it work? Well, just by way of background, uh, the, the first question is, what would a consumption tax aim to achieve? In, in Under the, the Influence, the book you mentioned, the starting point is that we take cues very strongly from one another. You know, it's a complex world. We, we have very little experience with, with all the things we would need to know about in order to be able to navigate successfully through it. And so if we didn't watch other people and take cues from what they do, we'd be really 
uh, destined to fail much of the time. So I think it's just a natural impulse to be influenced by what we see others doing. And uh, that extends as well to what we consume. The, The things you feel you need depend very strongly on what others around you have. So, for example, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in rural Nepal long ago. At that time, for the two years I spent there, I lived in a two-room house. Uh, I didn't have any electricity or running water. But the the remarkable thing, I thought, uh, early on, was that after just a day or two living there, that house seemed completely normal. It never felt unsatisfactory in any way. I was proud to invite friends and colleagues over uh, for social engagements. It, it was a totally satisfactory house. And yet, If I were to live in that same house here in Ithaca, New York, where I now live, that would not have been a satisfactory house at all. In fact, uh, I would have been ashamed, my kids would have been ashamed for others to see where we lived. It would have been a a statement that we had failed utterly to meet even the most minimal demands of social life. So the fact that we're so heavily influenced in what we feel we need by what others have has had an effect uh, on our spending patterns that is uh, profoundly wasteful. Uh, There's a a big literature on the determinants of human satisfaction, health, and well-being. And one of the most robust findings in it is that in countries like Australia and the U.S. and other, other rich countries, past a certain point, and we've gone past it long since, further increases in most forms of private consumption serve only to raise the bar that defines what we feel we need uh, or what we consider adequate. And so if, if all the mansions were suddenly to double in size, the people who live in them wouldn't be any healthier or happier than before. And the consequence of that is that uh, since most of the income gains of the last decades have gone to people at the top of the income ladder, naturally they've been spending more. People just below them go go to the the same social engagements as they do. They, they have their daughter's wedding receptions at home now. So that the people don't, in the second rank, they need a bigger house so they can have their daughter's wedding reception at home too. And it cascades all the way down the income ladder so that people in the middle now are spending about twice what they spent uh, in real terms on a house. Uh, and if you don't do that, then it's your kids who go to the below average school. So everybody's spending more. Nobody's any happier as a result of spending more. The, the cars are bigger. The, the parties are more lavish. But none of that is making anybody any happier. All the while, we've got other things we could be spending the same money on that would make an enormous difference in the way we experience our lives. And so that's the idea of the consumption tax. Scrap the tax on income. Report your income to the tax authorities the way you do now. Then also report how much you added to your savings during the year. We do that in the States here for tax-sheltered retirement accounts. So you've got your income, you've got your savings. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent in the year. And we tax that instead of taxing your income. And we tax it at a very low rate if it's a small number, uh, maybe even zero if it's a small number. But going up uh, past a million, two million, three million dollars a year of consumption, the next dollar you spend, the rate goes up and up and up. And so when you're thinking about putting a big new wing on your mansion, uh, now it's going to cost you twice as much as it would have cost you before we adopted this new tax system. So you're going to put that money in savings instead. And 
then the people below you won't feel they need such a big mansion. The, the others in your income class won't be adding wings on their mansions either. And since it's relative mansion size that really determines how you feel about your house, you're going to be just as happy as before. Plus, you'll have a lot more in savings. It's going to get channeled into investment. And the ones who do build bigger, they'll pay a tax. That can be used to, to fund green energy investment and, and other things that would do a lot more for us on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, because in, in your writings, I, I thought it was because your mind thinks like who's going to buy all these really expensive cars and mansions that make the economy go around anyway? Well, the whole playing field's level, so you're competing against the same people anyway. Yeah, and I think people, uh, the, the wealthier, are very reluctant to see their taxes go up. And I think it's because they suffer from a cognitive illusion. They think if their taxes go up, it'll be harder for them to buy the special luxuries they crave. Nobody's saying that if our taxes go up, we won't be able to buy what we need. And nobody's got a proposal that would have that effect. So what does it take to buy special luxuries? You know, those are always and everywhere things that are in short supply. How do you get them? You have to outbid other people like you who also want them. And when your taxes go up and their taxes go up too, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. And so the Mm. same penthouse apartments with sweeping views of the city go to the exact same people as before. I I like the idea of the consumption tax and you know, we've got a, uh, a national tax here. It's not state-based in Australia, and it's the goods and services tax, GST. It's 10%. That's a flat tax now, though, and that's very regressive. That means since the poor consume a much bigger fraction of their income than the rich, they pay a higher fraction of, of that tax than the rich do. The progressive consumption tax, you pay tax on your income minus your savings. It's a very different tax. Yeah, because in, in my kind of simple mind, I was thinking, gosh, if we did increase the consumption tax in Australia, would the UBI have to come in or actually have a higher a safety net for lower income earners? Yes, you would have to do it if, if you took that approach. But uh, why do that? Why not just adopt the progressive consumption tax directly? Do you think this will ever get up in any developed uh, economies? Oh, we have essentially a version of that tax in the U.S. now. You can deduct uh, your retirement savings completely from your income tax. The problem is there's a cap on how much you can deduct. And the wealthy are are already saving so much more beyond that cap that it's essentially ineffective in limiting their consumption. And if you don't stop the rate of growth of consumption at the top and channel that same money into public invest- investment and other things, you're not going to change the the expenditure cascade that puts so much pressure on people down below. When you talk about wealthy uh, and we throw this idea around about the wealthy, what type of like household incomes do you kind of flag in your mind when you're, you're using the word wealthy? in terms of US dollars? Oh, to be in the top 1%, for example, here, you need to earn six, $700,000 a year. You know, you're you're comfortable. You're not necessarily wealthy if you live in an expensive city, but what you need to get along depends on what others spend. And so, uh, again, the illusion is that if if you get taxed, it's going to make it harder for you. And the, the reason I think people think that is that Normally, if you would try to evaluate the effect of of, uh, an event, you would try to think back to other examples when that event happened. How did you feel about it then? 
the wealthy can't think about how they'd feel if their taxes went up because since World War II, taxes on the wealthy have been going down steadily. They haven't experienced the event of taxes going up. So what do they do instead? Plan B is to say, well, I know if my taxes go up, I'll have less money to spend. That's true. Uh, and they think back to times when they had less money to spend. And even if you've led a very charmed life, there'll be times like that. You had a divorce or a business failure, maybe you had a health crisis, a home fire, your kid got arrested, you had to hire a lawyer. There were times when you had less money. All those times were times when you had less money and everyone else had the same as before. Mm-hmm. And so you, th- you think back to those times, you were miserably unhappy on each of those occasions. And so you think, yeah, if they raise my taxes, I'll be ha- unhappy about that too. But no, that's because when they raise your taxes, not only do you have less money, everyone else like you has less money too. And so the relative bidding power that determines who gets the luxuries you all want is exactly the same as before. I, I like in your in your writings and particularly in the Under the Influence uh, Putting Peer Pressure to Work book, you talked about the Ferrari versus Porsche example. Can you explain to my listeners that example and the taxes and roads? Yeah, it's a simple thought experiment, Glenn. Uh, You imagine a choice between two parallel worlds. Uh, If you want to think about them as countries, we have little enough movement between countries that you could think about it that way too. So imagine... Norway, say, it's a high-tax country. Uh, The wealthy drivers there drive the lowly Porsche 911 Turbo. That's a car that sells here for about $150,000. In the U.S., we have low taxes on the wealthy. They have more money, and so they spend more lavishly on their, their rides. They buy the Ferrari F12 Berlinetta. That's a car that costs about a, a, a third of a million dollars here, $330,000. So the question is, if everything else were the same in those two countries, uh, except for the difference in the, in the cars that the wealthy drive, who would be happier? The wealthy in the U.S. driving their Ferraris, 300,000 plus cars, or the wealthy in Norway driving their Porsche 911 Turbos? The answer, we've not done the experiment, but the answer from indirect evidence is that we wouldn't be able to detect any measurable difference in happiness between the two drivers. Uh, For one thing, the main thing drivers care about is that they're driving the best car on the road, and that would be true in each case, since the the Norwegian drivers wouldn't be comparing their Porsches to Ferraris. The other point is that by the time you've got a Porsche 911 Turbo, that's a car that has every design feature that has any material impact on handling and performance already built into it. If the Ferrari is even a better car at all, it's better by only the most minuscule amount. So let's say they'd be, as far as we we can estimate from available evidence, equally happy. But then that's not really the right question to have posed. If Norway has a much bigger uh, tax rate on the wealthy, they will have more revenue. They will spend more on public infrastructure. And so the real question is, who's happier? The Norwegian Porsche drivers who drive their Porsches on well-maintained roads or the American Ferrari drivers who drive their Ferraris on roads riddled with footy puddles? And that's just uh, an uninteresting question. No driver would seriously choose to drive a Ferrari on pothole-ridden roads rather than a Porsche on well-maintained ones. Yeah, love it. Moving along, you know, you talk about behavioral contagion 
and it's a fascinating read. Uh, you've got four adult sons, and I like the correlation in the book about smoking particularly. You said if your four adult sons grew up when you grew up, there's a chance that two of them would probably be smokers. So talk to us about the behavioural contagion with either smoking, weight loss, diet, exercise, money, anything. That- there, there's there's uh, really compelling evidence in each of the domains that you just listed that what we do, what we choose to do is very heavily influenced by what others around us do. Uh, I carry the smoking example throughout the book just because I think it's the easiest uh, one to understand the basic theme of the book in the context of. I started smoking in in 1959. I I was 14 years old at the time. I only smoked for a couple of years. I was lucky. I I read a book and got scared and quit. But the reason I started was that uh, most of my friends uh, around my own age had already been smoking for a year or two by then. Both my parents smoked. It was just something that... People did back in that day. My two sons grew up uh, at a time when their friends just didn't smoke. They, they, they hardly smoked at all. And if you want to, if you're worried your kid's going to smoke, most parents are worried about that. Uh, it really doesn't help to know much about uh, what they're good at in school, what their interests are, how coordinated they are. In ping pong, none of, none of that is predictive about the, their risk of smoking. The, the, the one thing that will tell you how likely they are to smoke is the proportion of their friends who smoke. And it's a huge effect. So if that number were to go, say, from 20 to 30 percent, uh, your daughter, uh, your teenage daughter would become 25 percent more likely to become or remain a smoker uh, when that happened. Uh, there's no other effect nearly as strong as that. And what we, we know is that if you start smoking, uh, you cause harm to others. We didn't regulate smoking until there were studies coming out of Japan showing that exposure to secondhand smoke caused uh, illness in, in innocent bystanders. We don't like to tell people they can't do what they want to do, so we need the excuse of saying, well, you can't do it because if you do it, you'll harm others. It turns out, though, that the, the harm you cause other by ex- others by exposing them to secondhand smoke is second order. It's, it's minuscule compared to the harm you cause to them by making them more likely to become smokers. The objection to that that you hear is, well, that's their responsibility to decide whether to become a smoker or not. The government shouldn't have any role in that. But then I ask, what about their parents? Their parents have invested a great deal raising them to be healthy. They've done everything they could do within reason to persuade them not to be a smoker. If they pushed any harder on that goal, they'd make them more likely to smoke as a, as a way of rebelling against authority. So you injure their parents if you make their kids more likely to smoke. You are causing harm to other, and that harm is quantitatively vastly larger than the harm you cause by exposing people to secondhand smoke. And so really, we could justify the taxes and the restrictions we put on smoking much more uh, cogently by invoking the harm you cause by inducing other people to start smoking than by talking about secondhand smoke damage. And Mm. And, and smoking is such an addictive practice that even high taxes had very little effect at first. Uh, I had a friend who had been a heroin addict uh, at one point in his life. He said it was much harder for him to quit smoking than it had been for him to quit heroin. 
The, wow. the, the number of people who quit smoking when the tax goes up sharply is small, but a few do. A few others refrain from starting in the first place. That means those people, the ones who quit or didn't start, uh, every one of those uh, people has, uh, every member of his, his or her peer group now has one less smoker in it. Each of them is less likely to start smoking, so there'll be fewer still, and then that radiates out from there. If you don't invoke the contagion process in all of that, you just can't explain how the smoking rate fell from over 50% uh, where it was when we started doing all this to down around 13% among adults in the U.S. today. Yeah, I'd love to, uh, and I don't know if you've ever thought about doing this type of thing, but like using this example of the behavioral contagion with personal finances, like I know that the My Millennial Money Facebook group, there's 22,000 of us, we're all in there, we're being encouraged, we're being inspired by each other. I wonder, like in terms of personal and consumer debt, are you more likely to be a debt junkie and not manage your money more effectively if your closest peers are also not good at handing, handling their money? Oh, sp- spending is one of the most contagious things that there is out there. If you're, if you're with a peer group who spends conservatively, you will spend more conservatively. There's no, no uh, debate about that. Uh, sometimes we can or- organize peer groups on our own for, uh, with, with an eye toward achieving uh, sort of mutual goals of that sort. Uh, sometimes the government has to get involved. So I, I, I use the example of the, the amount people choose to spend on housing. Uh, other people are spending more on housing, so I spend more on housing. People say, well, may- maybe if you can't afford it, the best advice to give you is just suck it up and don't spend so much on housing. Mm. Okay, that's that's well and good, but there's another dimension to how much you spend on ho- housing, which is that if you're the the middle earner and your goal is only to send your kid to a school of average quality, we'd think ill of you as a parent if you didn't have at least that ambition. What mm. must you do? You must uh, buy access to the median price house for your area. Otherwise, your kid goes to the inferior schools. And so, of course, people are going to try to match that. Uh, and when they match it, uh, and others do too, uh, all they do is succeed in bidding up the prices of the houses in the better school districts. Half of all kids go to bottom half schools exactly as before. Mm. So the only way we escaped that dilemma was for the government to tax your wages and use that money to finance payments to you in retirement. Suppose you tried to save on your own for retirement. Some parents would raid their savings to bid for houses in better school districts. You wouldn't want to do that, but you'd you'd see that your kids were going to go to the worst schools. Unless you did that, you'd do it too. And then you'd all end up with no savings uh, sufficient to support yourselves in retirement. The the solution to that, uh, the simplest solution to that was the one we adopted, which was to have a government-funded retirement program. We take Mm -hmm. your money away from you while you're working. You can't use it to bid for houses in a fruit, fruitless bidding war for houses in better school districts. We give it back to you when you're retired. Yeah, wow. A topic close to home is electric vehicles at the moment. And you recently wrote, I thought it was a really amazing piece in The Atlantic. And I'll put the link in the show notes. So everyone, after you've listened to this, click the link and read the piece. You said consumers are also highly sensitive to contagion when choosing which car to buy. This has led to Americans to choose even bulkier SUVs. 
but with the right incentives, consumers could be encouraged to make a different choice. Many states already give tax breaks to buyers of electric vehicles, but that's hardly the only way to promote change. And before you answer or talk to this point, Audrey in the Facebook group actually wrote, there's a plan to bring in a tax on electric vehicles. Does Robert think introducing this early will stifle the uptake of this new technology? And for some context, Bob, uh, one state in Australia flagged that they're going to tax electric vehicles because in Australia, the fuel price, almost 70% of the fuel price, I think it's about 70% is actually tax. So we've got an issue here. If people take up this electric technology, the government will not have as much tax to fix roads, etc. Oh, it would be uh, a very ill-advised step for the governments to tax electric vehicles. Now, the the threat posed by uh, climate is the biggest threat we face. Uh, The pandemic, uh, well, you you and Australia have already got it under control. We hope to get it under control in our clumsy way by the time the Mm. vaccines get out later this year or early next, next year. But but the climate threat is by far the bigger threat. Uh, eventually, it will kill all of us if, if we don't act quickly to, to parry it. And the consensus path of, of what we need to do about it is to electrify as quickly as possible. We've got to stop burning fossil fuels and instead start powering our lives with renewable energy. And taxing electric cars would be exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, if we subsidize electric cars and, and the producers of them know enough to make them look distinctive, they have badges or other shape, shape uh, shifts that make them uh, easily identified by others, they, they will become contagious in the same way hybrid vehicles became contagious 15 years ago. The, the Toyota Prius and the Honda Civic Hybrid were the same size. They, were, they, they both were uh, exactly uh, equivalent in terms of their uh, purported ener- energy savings, but the Prius looked different from other cars. It had a distinctive shape, and it sold vastly more than the Honda Civic Hybrid, which looked just like their normal gas- gasoline version of the same car. So, yeah, we- I think our policy interest, since the goal of containing global warming is such an urgent goal to achieve, uh, our policy input interest is try to, to try to stimulate contagion along as many of those dimensions as we can. Yeah, because in that article, you did talk about the solar panels uh, on the roofs. And I, I've been thinking for some time that, oh, I need to get solar panels and not necessarily because of the cost benefit, you know, in you know three years or pay for itself and all that, just because it's the right thing to do. And my neighbor recently got solar panels and I looked over down on her roof and I can see the panels and that prompted me to call the company. Yes, yes, that's it. it's such a strong effect. So what you're saying is the virtual signaling uh, of solar panels is a good thing in this instance. Exactly. Uh, there, okay. the, the seminal study here showed that if uh, there were a new adoption early in the, in the cycle, that adoption would spawn a copycat adoption within four months' time on the average. They have statistical uh, means of sorting out whether the, the, the new ado- adoption would have occurred for some other reason, but it's a copycat. So after you've got on day one, you've got a new adoption. Four months later, you've got uh, a copycat. So you've got two. Each of them spawns a copycat. So after eight months, there are uh, four. 
doubling every four months after just two years, that first installation produces a stock of 32 new solar panel installations in the same neighborhood. And that's not even counting the fact that each of those families talks to friends and neighbors and uh, if friends and, and, and family in other locations, so you're going to get contagions spreading along that axis too. It's a huge effect. And so I think most people think, oh, if I do it or if I don't do it, society is the same for all practical purposes either way. No, the indirect effects of what you do are bigger, often as in that case, vastly bigger than the direct effects. And there's a second phenomenon too uh, rolled in, which is that when you take those steps, uh, it changes who you are as a person. I mean, we still need to take policy steps. We need to adopt a carbon tax. We need to uh, adopt more uh, uh, intense public investment in green infrastructure. All those things still matter too. It can't just be individual action. But when people take those individual carbon reduction steps on their own, that changes who they are. It makes them more likely to support the kind of politicians who will vote for the policies that we need, that we need to enact as a society. With the, uh, the carbon tax was a huge issue in Australia, an American term, a liberal government got in, they implemented a carbon tax the next term, the Conservatives got in off the back of removing the carbon tax. So it's been a bit of a debacle here. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it, it was a grave mistake to have rolled back that carbon tax. I think what, what uh, governments have done wrong in this dimension is that a carbon tax is so important that in order to pr- uh, promote political support for it, we need to make it revenue neutral. What that means is that you collect all the revenue from the carbon tax, you put it in a pool, and then you give it back to the taxpayers. My proposal would be to give it back progressively so that low and middle income voters would get a disproportionate share of the rebates of the tax revenues collected. But even without that, it would be progressive because uh, according to an Oxfam study, more than half of all carbon emissions worldwide uh, are due to consumption by the top 10% of the income distribution. So it's the big houses, the big cars, the, the distant uh, plane trips of the wealthy that are generating most of the emissions. They're going to pay the lion's share of all the carbon taxes. We collect those taxes and we give them back uh, progressively to low and middle income families, 90% of the taxpayers are going to get a payment back, a rebate payment back each month that, that's bigger than the amount they paid in carbon taxes. So what's not to like? Yeah, exactly. But I, the the political story sold here is that costs will increase and that will flow through to the consumer. So why would you want that? Well, the gas gets more expensive, but you've got more money coming back from the rebate so that you'll have an incentive to buy less gas. In fact, people uh, do do buy more fuel efficient cars when the price of gas goes up. They, they, they don't take as distant a trip uh, as, as they would have taken. But, but no, they're not uh, subject to any economic hardship at all. They've got more money than before. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey everyone, you might not have heard, we've got a podcast called My Millennial Health. Jess, what are we covering? So many things, Glenn. We're talking food, nutrition, movement, mindset, sleep, so much more. My Millennial Health is your one-stop shop for anything to do with your health and well-being. Love that. And the best news, everyone, is I'm not on it because I've got no freaking idea about health. So make sure you subscribe to My Millennial Health wherever you're listening to this podcast. And I can't wait for you guys to see what My Millennial Health has installed. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks. So in the short time we've got together, uh, I want to touch on two things and a couple of listener questions. Uh, The first one is I found, uh, I basically found you when I was doing some research about behavioral finance and credit card spending and the pledging to pay versus parting right now effect have you got any comments that you can tell my listeners from the studies that you've done on, I guess, being a credit junkie and, and that dopamine release that we get from, mm-hmm. oh, I'll worry about that later type vibe? You know, I, I stress to my own kids that uh, there's really one rule that's more important than any other for personal finance, and that is if you can't afford to pay cash for it, you don't buy it. Mm. That wouldn't be true necessarily for a house. Uh, Very few people could afford to pay cash for their first house at any rate. Uh, It wouldn't be true necessarily for their first car, although if you buy a used car, uh, most people could afford to pay cash for a used car that would serve them well. You can uh, work your way up the food chain in consumption. If you can't pay cash for it, uh, you're going to end up paying vastly more for it by the time you factor in the finance charges. And so what we know is that if you start off consuming modestly and consume slightly at a slightly uh, more elevated style year by year, that consumption profile is much, much more satisfying uh, in terms of uh, lifetime satisfaction than if somebody starts off consuming a lot and then gets burdened by debt and has a hard time making economic headway every year after that. So pay cash. Uh, Mm. If if you can't afford a new couch, buy a used couch. If you you can't afford it, save up for it. And and this just plays into this behavioral contagion with the frames of reference of the person next door buying crap that we need to better them, but they're just borrowed for it anyway. Right. Uh, So just keep intentional with your money, people. Now, the next thing that I wanted to just thank you for is I read your book, Success and Luck, and it was really good. So, thank you so much. Oh, I don't want to, um, I want to put the link in the show note for people to um, check that out and purchase it. I just want you to share your heart attack story because this is just such an amazing story and I want everyone to read the book. Yeah, that, the my decision to write about luck was really prompted by this experience. I was uh, playing tennis. It was November of 2007. 
a good friend and I played every Saturday morning uh, at a, a facility about five miles out of town. He told me later, some, some time later, that uh, during our second set on a changeover, we'd sat down. Suddenly, I fell off the bench and was uh, just lying there on the court, motionless. I had, he knelt to investigate. I had no pulse and I wasn't breathing. He yelled out for others in the building to call the emergency services. And then he flipped me over onto my back and started doing CPR. He'd never been trained to do that, but he'd seen it done in the movies. Uh, And he said after what seemed like forever, he got a cough out of me, a weak one. uh, And then presently he lost me yet again. He was about to give up when in through the door of the tennis facility burst the EMT crew carrying their gear. They stripped my shirt off me, put the paddles on me, shocked me back to life, stretchered me out to their ambulance, and I was flown to a hospital in Pennsylvania. They put me on ice overnight. I was there two or three days incoherent. I had uh, I, I learned uh, from the doctors after I sort of regained my senses that I had suffered an episode of sudden cardiac death. Uh, it's also called sudden cardiac arrest I, I like the term sudden cardiac death better. It sounds more dramatic. You, yeah. You're actually dead uh, for the time being anyway. And most people remain dead when they suffer sudden cardiac death. Uh, there's on, only a, a tiny fraction who, who ever regain consciousness uh, if they experience that outside of a hospital setting. And and the doctor told me, you don't want to see most of the ones who do survive. They're They're all kind of messed up. He said, it's, it's, it's really uh, a miracle that you're here and that, that you seem all right. I, I didn't seem all right the first few days. I was babbling incoherently. But then on a, about the fourth day, I woke up and I had a clear head. So since then, I've, I've been doing okay. What, what got me here was the fact that quite by chance, uh, about 30 minutes before I collapsed on the tennis court, there had been two auto accidents right near the tennis center where we were playing. And two separate amb- ambulances had been dispatched there. One of the accidents hadn't involved serious injuries. And so when the call came in about me, the driver of that ambulance was able to peel off and come immediately to me. Except for that, I wouldn't be here. So wow. that, that's my luck story. Yeah, and you share some other uh, interesting things in the book. Uh, is it like is everything just luck or no? No, everything's not luck. Uh, the 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 theme of the book is that luck matters way more than most of us realize. You know, if it hits you over the head the way it did me with that episode, then you'll notice it. But but mm. mostly we we notice the obstacles we have to overcome. We don't so much notice the the tailwinds that push us along. So so. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you did work. If you're successful, probably you did work hard. Probably you are talented. Probably uh, you did have to vanquish a lot of capable people along your path to the top. You know, so good. But mm. just remember, there are probably a lot of people who were just as good or better than you who didn't succeed. Uh, uh, yeah. and, and that's true now more than it ever has been in the past, just because the, the rewards have gotten so skewed in the economy that there's so many people com- competing for a limited number of top prizes that they're bunched together in terms of their effort and talent, uh, that top contending group. And so it, let one of them in the top 10 be just a little luckier than, than some of the others, and that person's going to win even if he's not the most talented. Yeah. Finally, two quick answers, listener questions. Felicity Cooney asks... What would politicians do differently if they understood economics better? 
the most useful insight I'd pass along would be, you know, you can't do it just uh, with voluntary individual action. Sometimes the things that it makes sense for us to do individually don't make sense for us all to do. We, we stand up to see better at an event. Nobody sees any better if everybody had remained comfortably seated. Uh, we, we do things collectively through government. There are many things that uh, make our lives better because of that. We need to pay for them. And the best way to pay for them, and this is the economic insight, is to tax activities that cause harm to others. That kills two birds with one stone. It discourages the activities that cause harm. That's something we would want to do even if we didn't need revenue. But our good fortune is that it also raises the revenue we need to pay for the things that will benefit us if we invest in them collectively. So tax Mm -hmm. harmful activities. Yeah. And the final question, Keith Sweeney asks, is the Great Reset really going to be possible? Uh, There's a World Economic Forum theme of 2021 called the Great Reset. So, I guess, what is that and will it come to life? That term doesn't have broad currency here. Uh, I'm going to guess that it, it means that we need to completely recalibrate the way we live if we're to parry the, the threat from climate change. Uh, so, yes, that, that it's absolutely imperative that we take that challenge seriously. The good news is that the, the money it would take to meet that challenge would be possible to raise. Uh, we talked uh, early on about the pro- progressive consumption tax. Mm, mm. That's a tax that would raise an enormous amount of revenue, more than enough to do the green investment we need to undertake, without demanding painful sacrifices from anyone in the whole economy. The, the wealthy would not see their mansions grow as quickly as they have been growing, but that wouldn't hurt them one iota. Mm. Well, Robert, thank you so much for lending us your time. It's been a great pleasure. And everybody, there'll be a link in the show notes for the two books we've talked about. And have you ever been to Australia? I have been, yeah. And I look forward to coming back. Oh, very good. And quickly, what are your plans for 2021? Have you got any new books or writings or thoughts that you're going to be? Yeah, I'm writing. Uh, I I haven't started a new book yet, but I probably will get around to that. I, I write a New York Times column and short pieces for, for other outlets. Uh, and right now, most of us are hunkering down, hoping to avoid getting sick uh, in, the, in the few short months that we hope remain before we're all vaccinated and safe to be out and about again. Yeah, yeah. All right, looking forward to what 2021 brings for us. Thank you so much, Robert. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.